Welcome to the next episode of Deviant Women. My name is Alicia. And my name is Lauren. And we're here to take you on a rollicking roller coaster ride through. I was hoping you were going to say roller coaster. Were you? You paused. I think it's going to be a roller coaster. A roller coaster ride through history, literature, mythology, contemporaneness. Yeah. Again, we can't we can't find another way of saying contemporary. I don't know. We'll get there eventually. We'll get there. But basically, we talk about women who kind of uh, shake things up, who are a little bit obscure in their own times. Yeah, yeah, who challenge the status quo. That's right. And we're active on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on iTunes. That's funny you said that we're active. Well, I'm not very active. You're active. I'm, You're, trying, yeah. I'm trying to be more active. We're trying to be more active. We made a promise last week that we were going to do better at Twitter. And I think you have been doing better at Twitter. I'm trying. This week. So if you want to inter- like, please interact with us because we really want to hear from you. We've had some suggestions from people about women that they would like to hear from. So we've got a list that's growing. Uh, we want to hear who who are your suggestions? Who do you want us to talk about? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good idea if people want to get in contact and let us know because otherwise we're just solid. We're just talking about women who fascinate us. Yeah, that's right. So, and we're hoping that they fascinate you too. But we're, I think. That's pretty on theme because this whole podcast is really like we're not experts. We're not historians. We're just two writers slash researchers, I guess. Academic-y type people. Sure. (laughs) I still don't really feel comfortable using that word. We're just two enthusiasts. We're enthusiasts. That's the word we're looking for. Um, So if you want to get on board and tell us that you think we've gotten something wrong. Yeah. Something in the history wrong. You can do that. Feel free to. Let us know. Feel free to get involved and have a chat with us. And if enough of you do, maybe one day we'll even make t-shirts. Yeah, merchandising. Merchandising. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that would be fun. I'd love to do some merchandising. You can let us know what you'd like and we'll send it out to you. We're going to custom make some merchandise. I'm pretty good at origami. I I am not good at very much in the way of crafting, but I can give it a red hot go. You're good at crafting. Am I? Yeah, I've seen you craft. I've seen you craft. Maybe I can I can build people individualized Lego deviant women. Fabulous. I think that's excellent. And we'll post it to you as long as the postage is not too expensive. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so merchandising for the future. But we might be getting ahead of ourselves because this is only episode five. It is. So episode five might not call for merchandising. And in order for us to grow, we need you guys to spread the good word. So please do. And hopefully today's episode will encourage you to to spread the word because today we're going to be talking about another fascinating woman. A woman who is a real woman who existed in history that is a real flesh and blood woman who existed in history but i think has actually really taken on um a bigger role in the popular imagination through her re-mythologizing through fiction various kinds of fiction yeah definitely i think it's probably going to be best known maybe through arthur miller's play the crucible that's right and we've done this thing again where we're skipping ahead of ourselves and pretending like you guys haven't read the blurb because we are today we're going to be talking about Tituba, 
who was one of the really central figures in the Salem witch craze. And the Salem witch trials are something that is still very, very popular. That's right. In popular culture now, if you talk about witches, if you talk about witchcraft, Salem often gets mentioned. So much so that I was actually a little bit like, oh, is it cliche to be doing a Salem episode? Is, are people going to just be like, oh, Salem, of course, when you talk about deviant women, you're going to talk about Salem. But that's why I chose Tituba, because I think that she's actually an underrepresented figure who has maybe become more of a villain than she deserves to be or has been misrepresented. I don't actually even think that many people would know who Tichaba is, to tell you the truth. Because as you said, through um, things like The Crucible, I think a really central figure that people think of when they think of Salem is Abigail Williams. Yeah, Abigail is definitely the most famous character from that play and probably then because of that, one of the most famous figures historically from this particular period of the trials yeah of the trials but tituba is probably a bit more obscure but maybe even more important than abigail in a lot of ways well i think without tituba's confession man those trials could have gone a completely different way yeah so we're going to get to talking about her confession in a little bit yeah we are but i think in just talking about how you may or may not be familiar with the salem witch trials in popular culture we were talking before about sabrina the teenage witch yeah and which the- i used to watch a lot <laughs> in the 90s i'm sure you did and even her cat was called salem yeah and he was of course a little black Puppet cat. Yeah, little black puppet witch cat. He was poorly animated some of the time. So bad. So like, bad. on rewatching, you really realise how bad yeah. that was. But it's okay, that's fine. I think that, you know, Salem is just this word that gets bandied about. American Horror Story. Yeah, so example. American Horror Story Coven, of course. They talk about all the trials, but also central figures such as Tichaba, who one of the characters, Queenie, I think she claims that she descends from Tichaba. Which is going to be an interesting idea when we come to talk about the real historical titular. Yeah, historical versus the fictional titular. Yeah. yeah. Let's keep that in mind for when we get to that point of the conversation. Mm. Let's put this into context for you historically in terms of where we are in the real world. So we're in Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is in New England, I believe. Which is in actually in America. Well, yeah, Not in, in North England. America, in the uh, American colonies, um, because we're in the year 1692. Aye. So we've gone way back in history. Last week we were in the UK with Angela Carter in the 60s and 70s. We've traversed the Atlantic Ocean and we've gone back, 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 back in time. 1692 is the year that these events took place between about February and September-ish. This is the bulk of of the stuff. And we're actually talking about a collection of towns here. So we often use the word Salem, but there's Salem Village, there's Salem Town, there's Ipswich and Andover. Do any of these places still exist now? I, I think that Salem itself is now Danvers. Yeah, I think so. Isn't yeah. it? So it's kind of actually shifted and changed. Mm-hmm. So they still exist and people go there too. I think that it gets really popular like around Halloween and people go and do tours. And I don't really know. I haven't been there, but I probably will go. Because <laughs> even though I actually really don't like tourism that centers around witch crazes because I, I actually think it's really macabre and because people actually died because there people was, fucking yeah, died people and died. they died for reasons that were really terrible and i i kind of think it's a little bit of a holocaust type situation i don't like tourism on it i mean in a in a respectful way i think it's fine but 
there's a lot of conflating the mythology of the witch with yeah. historical witches and that's what I don't like. Yeah, with actual so, real people. That's who... right. If we're being respectful and I think that now there are memorials on the site and so that's the kind of thing that I'm I'm totally okay with. Um, but if, if I was to go to Salem, I probably wouldn't dress up like a witch. I probably wouldn't go on Halloween. So anyway, that's just my personal political thoughts about the way that tourism works in witch <laughs> cruise districts. And I guess we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit there talking about memorials to people who died because let's set the scene as yeah, to how these should. people even died in the what first happened? place. What happened? Where did we get to? What went wrong? It may well start with Tichaba. Yeah, that's right. So coming back to the popular mythology of Salem, what's I think probably most famously known are the two girls at the center of events. And those are Betty Paris and Abigail Williams. And so it all began with these two girls having some hysterical bewitchment occurring to them. And Abigail and Betty, who do also appear in The Crucible, which is what I'm going off of because The Crucible is what I know the best. The play, Arthur Miller play, is how I best know the Salem Witch Trials. And I think that that's probably true for a lot of people. For a lot of people, despite the fact that it is a play which is not historically accurate, and it's also much more an allegory about McCarthyism in America That's right. at that particular time that Arthur Miller was writing the play. I think so. it is still useful. And actually, so the real Betty was nine years old and the real Abigail was only 11 years old. And this is the difference with The Crucible. The really, really key the difference. The big difference is that in The Crucible, all the girls are sort of represented as 17 years old That's right. Much older, and they are, because of their age in the Crucible, they're given a sexuality that's threatened, especially Abigail. Oh, absolutely. It's Abigail given. becomes this really dangerously lovesick temptress. Yeah, absolutely. Who she's causes a, the downfall of John Proctor. She does. She's this real sexual force. Whereas, of course, the real historical Abigail Williams, 11 years old. May the children. Well, may well still have been a real sexual force at 11 years old. And I'm sure Who that in, according to Puritan ideology of... She may have well been considered a sexual temptress at 11 years old. Oh, oh, good. That's That's really gross. You never know. But still very, very different to that fictionalized That's right. Yeah. So we've got these two girls and they are experiencing all these symptoms of bewitchment. So the popular myth goes that Tichaba, who was the slave in the household, she was owned by Samuel Paris, who was the minister of the town. And Betty's father. Betty's father, Abigail's uncle. So Abigail was living with the family because her own parents had been killed in an Indian raid. Mm, This is going to, that's an interesting point that will play into. Yeah, I think the, yes. So we're in a, a region where there is a lot of conflict and so there's a lot of fear that comes along with that conflict yeah. with between the um, New Englanders and the Native Americans who obviously already lived on that land. Yeah. And maybe well, we'll like so happy so about the yeah. New Englanders being yeah. there. So she lost her parents. She's now living with the family and with Tichaba. And so the popular myth goes that Tichaba taught these girls divination. And one day they were practicing um, this form of divination with an egg yolk. So what you do is you crack the yolk and then you look in it to see if you can find shapes, just like reading tea leaves or something like that. And they're looking for their future husbands, but instead... the egg yolk is going to form into the faces of their future husbands. Yeah, the egg yolk is... (laughs) That seems so logical to me. Let's not 
deconstructed okay, too we're much. Right, that's fine. And Let's there's a mirror involved somehow, which takes on a kind of crystal ball role. But I don't know the logistics of it. I just know there's an egg yolk and a mirror, and it's a bit like that's reading tea leaves. That's all we need to know. And apparently Tichuba taught this to the girls. Um, and so they're looking for their husbands, and instead they see coffins. Oh, and they freak dun, dun, dun. the fuck out. As you would. And, uh, Especially when you're 9 and 11 years old. Yeah, that's right. And they start screaming and barking like dogs, apparently. And these symptoms continue through to full-on hysterical fits. So they're, like, climbing all over the furniture. Apparently, Abigail tried to, like, get up the chimney or something. <laughs> they're contorting themselves into these absurd, unnatural positions. And meanwhile, their parents are like, uh, what the fuck? What has happened to our normal, placid, lovely little girls? This is going to take me back just for a moment to our very first episode in mm. which we talked about Floco, yeah. also known as Florence Cook, and this idea of her hearing things in the ceiling yeah. and seeing visions and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. It's very And having much, fits. And having fits. It's again talking about young women, or in this case, girls, very young yeah, girls. Yeah, preteens. Preteens. Getting into these hysterical states of mind where they basically just go a little bit... Actually fucking crazy. Well, crazy. I don't even mean to sound reductive by using the term crazy. It's actually something that I kind of hold on to proudly as a girl who definitely did have these kinds of hysterical moments yeah. by myself and with my friends. Yeah. And you know, who of us didn't have sleepovers where you'd work yourselves up into a frenzy? And I remember, I remember vividly at sleepovers when I was a kid, there was one time where we genuinely talked ourselves into believing that there was going to be a man swinging by his neck if we opened the, the curtains <laughs> and looked outside the window. And I fucking became Obviously. terrified. I remember that feeling of fear and I knew that we'd made it up. But it felt so real. Because this is hysteria. This is what it is. It's this idea that catches on and then it passes on to the next person right. and it passes on to the next. And before you know it, everybody has worked themselves up into a state of paranoia. Yeah. And this happens in Salem with these girls. Yeah. They go hysterical. Normally it just stays amongst the girls. But in or this normally case, the parents are like, everybody calm the yeah, fuck down. That's right. They're like, oh, girls. Girls being girls. Maybe we should all just take a step back. Let's take a chill pill. However, in Salem, in, in have 16, some warm milk. 1692, have in nap. Salem, they didn't we, do that. We don't have warm milk in a nap. We go, oh my God. The fucking devil's in Salem. The devil has made you do this. Satan's in Massachusetts and he is coming for our babies. He's coming for our babies. That's right. It's not just they've had a whole bunch of red cordial <laughs> and have watched Gremlins yeah. or Gremlins 2, which shows my age, <laughs> and have gone a little bit crazy and we have to keep coming in and telling them to be quiet and go back to sleep. <laughs> That's not what's happening here. What's happening no. here is we are taking this hysteria yeah. as a legitimate sign and symbol. We're full on Reaganing here. Yeah, we are. We're, having full on, we're going back to Floco again. <laughs> on, we're having a moment where this is a sign and a symbol that the devil is at work in yep. Salem town. And so they did actually call in the doctor um, and the doctor couldn't find any physical evidence that there was anything wrong with the girls. And so they did start thinking there's witchcraft afoot here. And so one of the neighbours, uh, Mary Sibley, she, unbeknownst to Samuel Paris, asked Tituba and Tituba's husband, John Indian, to make what is called a witch cake. Oh, what's a witch cake? So witch, this is really fun. Okay. It's so, really fun. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Okay. A witch cake is made of rye mm -hmm. and urine. 
Oh, urine. Whose urine? The urine of the afflicted girls. So it's a it's a wee cake. It's a wee cake. It's a wee cake. <laughs> yeah. And then you feed the wee cake to a dog. What? Yep. To a dog. The dog. Okay. Okay, so there's actually two versions. I'm not quite sure if it's one, the other, or both. But the dog will either start exhibiting the same symptoms of the girls, thus proving that, yes, they are indeed bewitched, or when the dog ingests the cake, the witch will feel pain and you will be able to hear her screams and you'll know who was the one who bewitched the girls. Because you've fed a urine cake to a dog. That's right. This seems perfectly logical to me. And you know what, actually? This comes from English folk magic. And so that's interesting, first of all, that Mary has gone to two people who are not English or European to ask them to make this witch cake. Okay. So they feed the witch cake to the dog and, yep, what do you know? Bewitchment. Because there's this kind of theory of effluvians, I think it's called. Is that what it's called? Which means, yeah, if the doctrine of effluvia, which means that, like, the witch's venom and malignant particles exist in the girls, thus are passed through to the cake through their urine and then through to the dog, and that's how it's all connected. This, so that's how they figure it out. Right, yeah, because that's actually really silly, but fine. <laughs> that's okay. But that's it's an English they... belief, English folk superstitious belief. And now this is interesting because we haven't really touched yet on Tichaba herself on yeah. her heritage, but this is probably a perfect point to talk about. Yeah, like, so this is the beginning of the hysteria, basically. Is, and this is the beginning of the Salem witchcraft trial. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much more or less. Yeah. So because it's then after this witch cake, it's Abigail and Betty pointing the fingers at three women. So they're pointing the finger at Sarah Good, who was like a homeless beggar, and at uh, Sarah Osborne. And so both of these women are very typical kinds of women to be accused in this period. So they're cantankerous old crones. They're poor. They're living already on the margins. They're and outside easy targets. Of totally easy targets. But the third figure, of course, is Tichuba. And so Abigail and Betty accuse Tichuba of being a witch yep. and of bewitching. Yep. Them. So here we are. So this, I think, marks probably maybe what a lot of people already know about how the witch trials kind of got started. I think people know that it was Betty and Abigail who had these hysterical fits, who pointed the fingers at these three women. But here's where we get interesting. Okay, so Tichaba herself has been conflated with her fictional version. So yeah. we've got a, a couple of different Tichabas who exist, really. The real Tichaba well, actually, rather, the fictional Tichaba is often portrayed as being an African-American slave. Definitely when you look at the Crucible and when you look at any versions of the Crucible, she is an African-American slave. For those of you who haven't seen it, maybe go out and see it. The 1996 version of the Crucible <laughs> starring Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, why haven't you seen it? If you haven't seen it, please go and see it. It stars Winona Ryder and Daniel yeah, Day-Lewis. Sure. So we should all go and watch that. Yeah. yeah. The opening scene in that is this African-American woman dancing around a fire with all of these hysterical young white girls flapping their arms about, dancing in the forest. She's got this voodoo vibe going on. She's dancing and there's like toads simmering in the pot and there's a there's chicken's blood and all these kinds of voodoo obi rituals, right? But that is not who Tichaba really was. So who was the real Tichaba? Good question. Thanks. Um, Please ask. ask. <laughs> so because Tichaba was a slave, it's actually difficult to 100% verify her history. But what's today generally accepted, or at least is one of the most popular 
origin stories of Tichipa um, is that she was likely born in an Arawak village in what is now Venezuela. Um, so she was probably captured as a child and sold into slavery in Barbados. So she's actually a native South American. Yeah, that's right. So more than likely, no African heritage. That's Yeah, that's right. Some historians, particularly in the 19th century, um, wrote about her as though she was at least half African. Some historians, particularly from the 19th century, wrote about her as though she was either fully African or at least half African. And this comes from probably a mixture of, I guess, that post-Civil War idea of what a slave is. Yeah, well, it's definitely, if you say the word slave, then you automatically, it gets, automatically you, your associations are African-American. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of an interesting conflation to be made and to continue to be perpetuated because this works into this idea that we've talked about before. I mm. think we talked about it a bit with Bertha Mason of otherness. That's right, yeah. And yeah. otherness being this idea of simply anything that is outside your own community or society that is different to you and that automatically is assigned as bad mm. and and an easy target for stuff like this you know like they're the scapegoats of society and we have groups of others who are our current scapegoats yeah of course we do there'll always be others there'll always be others there'll always be scapegoats so we can also trace this um mix-up racial mix-up which i think comes from a little bit of a good old-fashioned white racism where we kind of, you know, white people do have a history of conflating one group of others with another group of others because if they look different to us, then they must all be the same kind of different, right? So she, she was sold into slavery in Barbados. Yeah. And then she was purchased from Barbados and went to New England. That's right. With her new owners. Yeah. So I guess it's that idea of, well, you've come from Barbados You've come from a place where African American slaves well, are African slaves African, because they're yeah, in Barbados. That's right. They're yeah. Af- African so slaves. American. That's right. Uh, the sort of norm. Yeah. And so you've been basically just bundled in with that group of people. Yeah. And taken to be one of those people. Exactly. And again, if we're thinking, you know, like a lot of the writing about Salem began to to really take off in the 19th century. And um, someone who's probably responsible for re-mythologizing Tichipa as being an African woman is Henry uh, Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, so he wrote, a, I think it was a drama, Giles Corey of the Salem Farms. And he... He referred to her as being a daughter of a man all black and fierce. He was an OB man and taught her magic. So this probably also contributed to the popular imagination idea of Tichaba as being a black African woman. Mm. So we've conflated her race with a whole bunch of other people. So that's great. That's a really good starting point for history. And she's now accused of witchcraft. She's accused of voodoo by these pure innocent white girls Mm. and so then what happens okay so let's also just keep in mind that tichiba is really close to the family because that's just the way that life is at this period so she would have been bought by paris so paris used to be a merchant and he had a plantation in barbados so that's probably where he purchased both tichiba and her husband john indian and then brought them back over to boston with him and then the whole family moved to salem town when he became the minister Um, So she would have lived with the family, eaten with the family, even possibly slept beside the girls 
things like that. So she's she's quite close to them. And it's interesting to question whether or not Tichaba really did teach the girls these divination techniques or if this is something that they just made up. Because like I said, the witch cake is an English tradition. So is the egg yolk. So it's not actually voodoo or obe no, magic it's not. at all. It's possible though because of her heritage. Like you said, Barbados did have a lot of African slaves as well. So if she was there as a child, I think some scholars put her at being between the ages of 13 and 18 when she was purchased by Paris. So she's probably spent some years as a child in Barbados where, you know, she very well may have encountered other kinds of occult practices because in Barbados there was this emerging Creole culture. So she's possibly encountered Obi magic there. And also another thing that's interesting is that that culture took a lot of different spiritual and supernatural practices and they kind of all started to meld together. So you've got some Christian influences, you've got some African influences, um, you've got all sorts of things in this like melting pot of superstition and magic and it's not just one-sided so the white settlers there as well are starting to pick up on these african practices and the obi and the voodoo magic and integrate that into their own folk magic superstitions as well so in terms of the community that was there in salem maybe a little bit of background about them is Mm. useful here as well because it was a puritan society that's right so it was a very religious society they called themselves religious refugees and Mm. they sort of came over to new england in the early 1600s sort of 1620s 1630s and they were basically escaping what they saw as a false sort of religion in the roman catholic church yeah that's right back in england and the anglican versions of that which also had a lot of that they they retained a lot of the catholic style rituals and the but they were more along the lines of calvinists Mm -hmm. yeah and so this is under king king charles the first that they kind of were escaping to the Netherlands and then a lot of them, other places as well, but a lot of them ended up here in Salem and sort of set up these communities. Puritan, very heavily religious societies. And so they've been there for... A couple of generations. Quite a a few generations. They're heavily established. Yeah. And also, interestingly, just by the way, Salem is probably the most famous of the witch trials, but it wasn't the first... So witch trials had been happening. Um, There was a case, I think maybe the first case was in um, 1647 in Hartford, Connecticut. So there's already sort of this idea is taken up elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But here in Salem, we've got a very religious, strict, sort of God-fearing community. Yeah, and also a very isolated community, a a community that doesn't have a lot of others living amongst them. They are a monoculture, really. So Tichaba is going to stand out like a sore thumb. Well, there are other slaves, Slaves other African slaves. And actually, this is part of the reason why we know that Tichaba is probably not of African descent, because she's actually described in the court records and by um, her contemporaries as being Indian. And she's really distinguished from the other slaves because they are actually referred to as being African Negroes. So, okay, so there's actually, she's an anomaly here. And she is recognized as such. Yep. I I mean, as far as I know, there there may have been other Indian slaves. But those court records definitely take her as separate. That's correct. She is called an Indian woman and a slave or a servant. That's interesting then, isn't it, to consider how over the generations she's become conflated as something completely different. Despite the fact that if you go to the primary sources, she is always only identified as being Indian. Very interesting. And the African slaves 
are not. Yeah. And of course, so when, when they're we, not confusing them. When we use that word as well, we're, we're using the historical term Indian. Yeah, that's right. Obviously. I mean, yes, they didn't refer to them as being Native American or tribes or nations or South American or, or South American or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's right. yeah, so we've gotten her then in these court records as coming through as accused alongside two white women. Yeah. So that's also an anomaly, isn't it? It is. Well, as she's a really easy target because she is an other. And also because of her history of coming from Barbados and the associations that the Puritans know that that has with what they would see as being occult practices, diabolical kinds of spiritualities and superstitions. Like they know that that kind of magic takes place in those cultures. And so she's she's naturally associated with that. So it kind of makes her seem to them like she's actually an expert on this and maybe that she has some authority when she's talking about witchcraft. You know what I mean? So she's both an easy target, but she's also an unusual target Mm. in that, Uh, women of color just typically hadn't ever really been accused apparently Hmm. so what happens from here all right so we have abigail and betty pointing their fingers at these three women so they're all arrested but tituba was the only one to confess and her confession's the really really important thing in this whole whole witch craze because honestly without tituba's confession there's a chance that the Salem witch craze wouldn't have happened. So at this point, as you said before, we've already had some witchiness happening in Connecticut. Yes. There's definitely been stirrings elsewhere. Yeah. But in terms of Salem, there hasn't been any executions as yet. There haven't been anybody sort of brought to trial. At this particular moment in history, as far as I'm aware, no. Like, I can't say definitively that in Salem it had never happened, but, like, yeah. I mean, in Massachusetts, there had been other arrests and other trials and things like that, but this is really definitive. Her confession, Tichipa's confession, is sort of a catalyst for what comes next. Yes. Okay. And this is the really juicy stuff. So this is what we're going to hopefully dive into and pick apart and really think about. because In terms of deviance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In terms of deviance and motivation and all of the kinds of what we would now in a 21st century context probably considered to be the ethics of interrogation yeah. and um, the nature of confession and things like that which of course in 1692 there's no such thing as the ethics of interrogation yeah. no such thing as police brutality <laughs> no maybe not but her confession actually does come after some brutality doesn't it yeah because so remember how i said that mary sibley secretly asked for the wee cake, for the witch cake, Samuel Paris did find out about it. And when he found out and having Abigail and Betty going crazy, he apparently became quite violent towards Tichipa. Apparently he beat her and told her that she needed to confess. So he, he accused her. Yeah, yeah. He was a part of this, like, did you do this? You must confess. Are you working with the devil, et cetera, et cetera. So she was arrested and she was um, brought to answer the charges on the 1st of March in 1692. So she was brought into the meeting hall, which is kind of the real center of the community. This is like the church, the town hall, everything rolled up into one. So she would have been really familiar with this territory. They're probably, I don't know if there would have been people watching, but let's imagine there probably is. <laughs> Everybody's come to have a look-see. Yeah, I reckon they probably did. So Not much else is going on in town. I don't think that there's, there's not much else to do. No, there's probably some dung to shovel up. And <laughs> so let's just get down to the town hall. Yeah. And watch this one. It's also March, so it's probably still pretty cold. 
It would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. So because you can imagine like the shivering there in the town hall and they're like, let's So this also this. plays into that superstition as well, doesn't it? Like yeah. this idea of where this part of the world, cold, dark, once the mm. day is done, once the sun is down, you are in the darkness, you can That's light right. yourself a candle or a lantern, but superstition, it's, it's the breeding ground for fear, yeah, for paranoia, yeah, yeah. for stories. And nobody doubts that this stuff exists. No one has a, a, a single element of doubt in their belief in God and also their belief in devils, in the belief that and, demons exist and interfere in the lives of humans. And this is, a, this is sort of something that comes out later in the trials as well, isn't it? About how if you say you don't believe in demons, if you refuse to say, I believe in spectres and mm. devils and in seeing these sorts of things then you're also accused of not believing in angels and not believing in God. And it's this idea of if you don't believe in the devil and in his evil, then you're also admitting to not believing in God and his goodness. Yeah, and so you're also heretical. Exactly, which is just as damning as just admitting to it and just saying, oh, I do believe in these things. I believe in the devil because I have to believe in the devil if I'm going to believe in God as well. Yeah, and... You know, it's interesting because Tituba, I think that she really knows, she knows her stuff. Okay, so during her confession, initially she denies the charges that she hurt the girls, right? Um, But then she's asked who did torture the girls, to which she responds, the devil for all I know. Mm. Sassy. Yeah, the devil for all I know. (laughs) She then goes on to say that the devil came to me and bid me serve him. So she changes her tune. Well, she's passing the buck. I didn't torture the girls. The devil the made devil me do did. it. The yeah. devil made me do it. So she describes the devil to the room. Apparently he was a tall man with white hair in a dark serge coat and had appeared traveling from Boston. He ordered Tichaba to hurt the girls. And apparently he said that he'd kill her if she didn't. She also claimed in her confessions that she had conversations with evil pigs or hogs. <laughs> evil pigs. Yep. That's great. <laughs> with uh, a great black dog, a black cat, and a red cat, of course. And Cats always appear here. And she described the familiars of the other two women. So apparently Good had a yellow bird. Very nice. That's very lovely. Nice. Yeah, yeah. good, like a Tweety bird. Osborne had a creature with wings, two legs, and a head like a woman. Yes, I've read that description. That's brilliant because the thing is, is that's not a real thing. It's not a real thing. She made that up. That's not a real and thing. And I wonder where it came from as well. Like... If there is a mythology that she has, like, from her childhood and she's thinking of a creature, like, or if she just, I don't know, where did it come from? Made that up on the spot. That's great. If it's a European thing, if it's a... But the question there as well is that, does she believe what she's saying at this point? Yeah. Or is she simply saying what she knows she is expected to say? Yes. Is this confession coming from a place of, I need to say what this room wants me to say? Or is it coming from a place of, I fully believe that I have seen these things mm. and that I have been a part of these things. Well, this is interesting. First of all, we should remember that she's not educated. You know, she's a slave. But what she's confessing to matches a European 
version of witchcraft. Okay, so she goes on to say that the so the other two women were much stronger than her and kind of coerced her into going with them. Um, and she said that they rode upon a stick or a pole, right? So this is very familiar. This appears in European witchcraft, of course. This is where the broomstick comes from. Yeah. And then she further confesses to signing the devil's book in blood. And the devil's book, that's a very sort of European idea yep. as well. Yep. And, but interestingly, and this is where we come back to that idea of how complicit like well obviously she's complicit she is going along with what they want her to say but i don't think she wanted to hurt anyone so i I think that there is an element of self-preservation i think there's also she is a slave she has spent her whole life having to tell white men what they want to hear and that i think that does come from a place of self-preservation because you know that the easiest way for you to get through life is to make this person happy. Yeah, and to please them. Yeah, you learn the cues of that. You learn how to respond in your vocabulary and in your body language and you you learn how to answer questions correctly. Yeah. To tell them what they want to hear, right? I mean, I'm sure that... I assume that that's something that happens. It seems like that's something that I would probably do. (laughs) And not even consciously. It's just something that would just happen. So um, eventually she's so because what she does is she says that in this book that she signed, there were nine other markings of people's names. So she already knows that the other two women, Good and Osborne, are implicated. So she she says, yep, I saw Good's name. I saw Osborne's name. Because I can't save them no matter what I say. That's right. They're already fucked. Yeah. However, she couldn't read the other seven names. So she doesn't implicate anybody else. No. She doesn't accuse anyone else. No. So her confession is really really important for a few different reasons first of all like apparently she was quite the, the storyteller apparently she's very engaging and this kind of I gives can imagine us the thing with the woman's face and the yeah it's pretty engaging and think about her as uh, it, you know through the puritan eyes of being this other she's probably got an accent she's looking different she speaks in a way that's a little bit different a little bit funny her, her confession was one of the longest in the salem testimonies and she also pro- provided some of the most specific detail about what happened and that's one of the things that's really important here because she provided very specific details but she did so in a way that also kept it really vague yeah without implicating again yeah. without implicating anyone else and also her details changed a little bit so her tall white-haired man became a short dark-haired man from maine the number of conspirators kept changing but what's interesting about her description of the man as well is that first of all she did say that it was a white man yeah a tall white-haired man from boston yeah in a in a serge coat he probably looked a lot like imagine this panel of men sitting around her in that white man yeah that's right he looked like one of them. And so suddenly they're not outside of this anymore because the devil is one of them. Could be any of them. Could be any of them. That's right. Exactly. But in the white versions that continued after that point, the devil became uh, tawny. He became dark. And so the version of the devil kind of changed. But as we said, hers was the first confession to implicate it implicated these women which was important but also the content was important because it provided evidence that it was the devil himself who was active in massachusetts and that's really important because you need evidence of satanic presence as a legal requirement in order to begin a witch craze which you know hey we really want to begin this witch craze we just need some proof of the devil yeah and her saying that she saw him 
counts as proof because it's a confession. So there's two things about this confession that I want to touch on as well. Mm. I'm just going to interrupt you talking about the confession. So the first is that in giving a confession, there's, there's sort of a couple of options for you. You can continue to deny this and continue to be accused and eventually hang for it. That's right. Or you can make your confession and go to jail, right? Mm. So your options are kind of just to confess and stay alive or to deny and die. And that's also interesting because as a woman of color and as a slave, she doesn't have anything to lose, you know, like she's not a white woman, the wife of somebody. She doesn't have status. She doesn't have any kind of clout in society anyway. So she's actually kind of in a position where she can confess without really losing much in terms of things like reputation or... She doesn't have children. Yeah. But what's also, I don't know if this is something that you were going to pick up on, but her confession became the framework for all of the the testimonies and the confessions to come. That's exactly what I was going to say, because now we sort of have most of the confessions that come after this are kind of copycat confessions. Basically, yeah. So at one point during her confession, for example, she claimed that she was like blind and that froze her up. And I think that she had just miraculously gone blind that moment. Yeah. She just went blind, froze up, couldn't move. And that this was the devil like punishing her for divulging his secrets. And so it's probably just her running out of ideas of what to say at that moment. Or just getting wrapped up in that hysteria. (laughs) That's true. So it could be one or the other. It could be part of that pretense and lie, or it could be part of that getting so worked up that she legitimately just is starts yeah. completely in the moment and yeah. believes and what she's in the saying. same way that I believed that there would be that man swinging by his neck outside the, the window. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So eventually other villagers started to claim they, they also went blind or they would also freeze up. People started seeing specters appearing. This is setting the scene for the type of witchcraft that they're going to find. And you know, Tichipa does know what she is talking about because, like I said before, she is very much playing into what they want to hear. And this is where we get to that ethical dilemma of when you've got a powerless person in an interrogation, it's like, hmm, what is truth here? Mm. You know, is she consciously lying? Is she telling the truth? Her confessions became more and more elaborate as she collaborated, suggesting that she did know what her interrogators wanted to hear. But this means, is she going off of this on her own or are they feeding her the information? Are they... You know, what, what? what is it called when you have those police interrogations and they, they ask leading leading questions? Is mm. that it, right? So are they asking Entrapment. Her, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Do we have a scenario of entrapment here where she's being asked questions that she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did have a book. And yeah, I did sign it. Or does she already know enough about the types of European witchcraft and religion that, that she's she, expected to know about. That's right. Yeah. That she can feed into, um, help her just get out of this situation that she's ended up in. Yeah. So from here, from her confession, she goes to jail for, for this. She doesn't, she that's doesn't right. hang for this. She goes to jail for this. Yeah. Whereas the other two women were tri- found guilty and um, one of them was hanged. I think one of them died in prison. So in terms of what happens from here... Plenty of other people are now mm. accused of mm. witchcraft from That's here. right. And all up in Salem, we have about 20 people I that think, are eventually executed. I believe so. I think it's about 19 who were hanged and one man who was crushed to death. Oh, what happens when you get crushed to death? <laughs> so um, I think you're, you're lying down and they put stone upon stone upon you trying to get a confession out of you. 
until you are either <laughs> confessed or dead. That's right. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's not obviously it's terrible, <laughs> but yeah, that's what they did. So I mean, really, that's so that's twenty people that died. Yeah. For superstition. Yep. Basically. <laughs> and I mean, this happened. Obviously, this happened globally as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. A lot. The other thing to remember as well about Salem is that we often think about witches in terms of a very feminine, specific female thing. Yeah. But men died yeah. during this. Like the witch, the, these the, the crushing. Rights. That was a man. That was he a man. Was crushed. Right. Yep. So there were other men that died during this as well. So it was basically. It wasn't necessarily a solely female kind of witchiness that was being accused here. One of the key things that was sort of suggested was that people's spirits would leave their body mm, and the that spectres. a spectre, and in that form they would do harm to other yeah, people. Yeah, there was or, a lot of pinching of people or and manipulating grabbing. people into doing yep. things, Co- just basically causing pain to other people. And so men were just as guilty of this. And as it's interesting, women. and I wonder how much of that is because men are the property holders here, and you've got a small community. There are apparently a lot of like rivalries yeah and so if you're implicating men in this you're eliminating if you can just accuse your enemy if you can just That's accuse right. your competition and if you're found guilty then your family can't keep your property yeah and so you know there's, there's a lot of machinations going on there. yeah yeah but in terms of that gender divide when we talk about witchcraft and who hangs for it basically yeah there's something very interesting about when we talk about european witchcraft which was predominantly Females. Yeah. And people getting burnt at the stake as well. No one was getting burnt at the stake no, in Salem. No. In Salem, it was hanging or this wonderful crushing, crushing by stones. Wonderful. Yeah. Fabulous. I just want to have a little divergence here yeah. to talking about Iceland, ah. which is an anomaly in all of this. Yes, it is. Because in Iceland, it was predominantly men. There was only ever one female who was executed one is just such a small number. And the you... rest were, were, were yeah. males because it was much more wizards and warlocks and men who held the power yeah. and women who didn't. So there's only ever one female it's interesting. executed in Iceland for witchcraft. But that is an aside that I desperately <laughs> very, I think that like the Iceland situation is really fascinating. It is very, very interesting. I would like to know more about Because, I mean, the gender thing in a European context does come back to that idea of power, but it's about women trying to gain a power that isn't considered to be naturally theirs or shouldn't be theirs. And that they're going about trying to attain that power in diabolical ways. Yeah. Whereas in Salem, we've got a fairly evenish spread. It's not quite even. There's still more women than men, but where in Europe, the numbers were about four to one. So four women for every one man in Salem, we've got three to one. Okay. So it is a little bit closer. It's a little bit closer. Yeah. But that idea of power is actually really interesting here because, as I said, Tichuba's description of the devil did align him with those kind of magistrates and the justices and the clergy, right? And I think this is where we come back to that idea of is Tichuba like, I think particularly in the 19th century, she's painted as the villain in all of this because it is her confession that is considered by many to have been the catalyst for the events. And like you said, 20 people died, you know, and many, many more were accused and so and died in jail as well yeah there was five i think who died in jail because there was 20 who were executed but then more that died yeah and two children died in jail like infants yeah yeah so if tichaba is the villain the one whose confession has led to the arrest and execution of 20 innocent people then this exonerates those elites the the magistrates and the justices and the clergy the people who had the power to actually stop yeah. these executions but didn't yeah you know tichaba's completely powerless she's not 
active in any way. In yeah, this. she's only reacting. Absolutely, completely reactive. She's not really done anything except answer questions, which let's be honest, probably planted. She, you know, we know. And let's what... not forget the brutality that led her to make That's this right. confession exactly. in the first place. The exactly. fact that she was beaten by her owner, she was yep. beaten by Paris. Yeah. To make this confession. So as we now well know, a bit of yeah. brutality never goes astray when you, you want can, somebody to you admit can something. easily plant information during a confession if, if a witness is suggestible. So this makes me wonder then, when she was put in jail after this, did she continue to hold to this belief? No, she didn't. No. Once she was in jail, she retracted her confession. But what's important about this retraction is that nobody actually listened to her. People didn't take it seriously because, of course, it's not what they wanted to hear. This is horrible. So this is like she's now seen that everything's getting a little bit out of hand. Which does... becoming a clusterfuck of of a situation. Absolutely. And she's like, hey, everyone, okay, look, what I said before was a bit of BS. (laughs) Maybe let's calm the fuck down. So she admitted to lying to protect herself. But only one person took any notice of this and wrote it down. Oh, and this no. is what it said. It said, the account she, Tichiba, since gives of it is that her master did beat her and other ways abuse her, make her confess and accuse, such as he called her sister witches, and that whatsoever she did by way of confession or accusing others was the effect of such usage. Oh, no, that's awful and that's I think, horrible so that whole idea of coercion of being like beaten into submission with the addition of the fact that they didn't take her retraction of her confession into account suggests to me at least that they really were looking to her to hear what they wanted to hear yeah and once they got what they wanted to hear nothing else mattered that's right and so as a powerless woman with all of these powerful men asking her questions how much were they feeding her and how much was she reacting out of self-preservation slash just, you know, as we said, that being accustomed to pleasing her masters. It's just, I think, I feel just so sad for her because what was she going to do? Oh, she, she had, had no, yeah, that's it. She had no, no, no choice in the matter. Yeah. There were no options for her. That's right. So what happened after this? She didn't die in jail. She didn't die in jail. So I've actually read two different contradictory accounts. One says that Samuel Paris refused to pay her way out of jail because probably he was pissed off that she had retracted her confession and kind of made everybody question everything that had happened because they did eventually, after September, reel it back. They were like, whoa, everything's gone way out of hand here. Like we need to, and a lot of people who had been accused were exonerated. So that would have been a good nine months to have been living somewhere else. Well, this is, you know, so coming back to the crucible, John Proctor, right? So he's set up in the crucible to be this man who his downfall is caused by Abigail. And I guess his own uh, licentious behavior, but his wife, Elizabeth Proctor. Elizabeth Proctor. So she did actually survive him and they did have children together. However, she wasn't able to get her name cleared, which meant that she lost all the property and things like that. So there were people who survived this who didn't end up going to the gallows because everything slowed down, but they were still ruined. That's right. Their lives were still kind of over 
yeah. in that sense. So the other version is that Tituba did eventually have her jail fees paid by Paris. But I don't know. Basically, we know that her jail fees were paid by somebody and she was freed. But we don't know what happened to her after that. Well, actually, a little bit. So she does disappear from the historical record. However, we know that she was freed from prison after 15 months. By someone? By somebody. Probably not Samuel Paris. I I read one account where it was Samuel who paid her fees, but I don't think that that's actually correct. It's more likely that she never saw the Paris family again. Okay. And after that, she kind of disappears from the record, though she does, of course, escape with her life. And like we mentioned a little bit earlier, in more modern times, in more recent times, there have been some kind of rewriting of the history books in yeah. terms of a lot of the people that were accused of witchcraft at the time. Yeah, they were exonerated, I think, formally. And there's now memorials, I think. Apparently, I haven't been there, but apparently there are. Yeah, and so I guess there has been some rewriting of her story. Yeah. But it's not the popular story that... Well, that's right, because the legacy of her continued to live on. While we don't know much about what happened to the real Tituba, she did metamorphize into a different kind of Tituba. And that is that Tituba that we were talking about before, who is the black African voodoo um, voodoo magic person, or even different forms of um, her Indian heritage as well are, are confused. Because this is something we also talked about earlier, is the fact that the real Abigail Williams, mm. her parents were killed by Native Americans. Yeah, that's right. So there's possibly even this idea that Abigail's accusations against Tichipa way back at the very beginning may possibly had something to do mm. with Abigail's own sort of bias towards... Yeah, possibly. Um, her fear her from... Her fear of otherness her fear of conflating Tichiba with this sort of Tichiba who is from South America but conflating her with this idea of the Indian yeah because and there was a lot of fear at this time because of course there'd been a lot of conflict because the New Englanders had you know quite recently settled on Native American land and they killed people there there were deaths on both sides but there were also a lot of stories of people witnessing well claiming to have witnessed cannibalism and devil worship and this created huge panic whether or not that's true it nevertheless meant that some people called uh, Indians Satan's most devoted children, which is a pretty horrific thing to say. Yeah. So this all plays back as well, obviously, into that paranoia and that fear at the time and into the fact that this blew up into a a crazy hysteria. Yeah. Uh, There's a million... Do we learn? Do we ever learn? Oh, God. Did we learn? Did we learn? No. Because Because... obviously when Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible, (laughs) he was using this period in time as an allegory for McCarthyism. That's right. And And, and communists under the bed, all that kind of stuff. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Witch hunts for communists. Yeah. Um, There's always a scapegoat. Throughout history, there's constantly a scapegoat. And this is why we need to study history. This is why we need to remember stories like Tichibas and Salem and McCarthyism. Yeah. Because you never know, one day you might end up with like... Oh, you know, demagogical presidents who start blaming other groups and fear-mongering you could. You in could. order to imagine scapegoat if that a country's problems onto a different kind of a group oh, of people. Imagine if history repeated itself. It would be tragic. It would be tragic. We would be such idiots if we let that happen. Wouldn't we be morons if that happened again? <laughs> oh. oh, well. Oh, dear. Uh, we'll just oh, carry on. Us oh, humans. We're, we're a genius. 
We're great. So anyway, uh, we hope if we leave you on that note, it's not it's not too depressing a yeah. note to end this week's or this sorry this fortnight. Yeah, I'm that's get right. better at saying that's, that. And let's remember Tichuba as a woman that she was not the woman that she became conflated with in history. Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think that's a, probably the positive to take out of yep. this, maybe. But otherwise, I think that's that's us done for this fortnight. Yeah. And thank you for joining us once again as we journeyed back in time. And please get in contact with us if you found anything from this episode interesting or if you wanted to respond to it in any if way. If you want to correct us or yeah, berate that's fine. us. fine. You or... can do that because, as we say, enthusiasts. <laughs> and we are always open to hear from people. Yep. We'd love to hear from you. And find us on iTunes. Subscribe. Review. Leave your thoughts. Unless nice they're terrible. Thoughts. Nice yeah, thoughts. Leave your nice thoughts. Yeah, and so what are we going to do next time? Ah, yeah. Well, we're geographically whereabouts are we? Ah, so I think next time we might start possibly in maybe in the UK. Mm. We might move. Actually, we might do some globe trotting. We might start in the UK. We might hop across to Europe, oh, yeah. and then we might jump the divide again and end up perhaps in Mexico. Ooh. Maybe if if we'd like to get on board with that and yep. we'll see what happens and we're gonna bring it forward again in time mm. we might bring it back to the 20th century awesome yeah sounds so good we'll see what happens so please join us next time and uh, get in contact if you want some merchandise <laughs> yeah merchandise. i haven't made any yet but <laughs> take Alicia up on that she's gonna personally make you whatever i will you want. i'll craft it all myself okay anyway, we'll see you next time see you next time <laughs>